I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Psalms 141. I'm sorry to feel so apologetic. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're studying Lifeline to Heaven. That's the title that we're looking at, Lifeline to Heaven, Psalms 141. And the thing that I've been emphasizing, the thing we want to continue to emphasize, is that salvation is found at the cross of Calvary. Salvation is always found there. There's no other way to find salvation but through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, don't go looking for salvation anywhere else. But once you've found salvation at the cross of Calvary, don't go thinking that you've arrived because you haven't arrived. And if you study the sanctuary service, you'll find out that after the cross there is a labor demanding that we make a commitment to the Lord by baptism. And after the labor, we go into the sanctuary by faith, which represents heaven. And in that sanctuary, God brings us to the place where we need to do three things. Now, it's amazing to have to say that, that we need to do three things, but he gives us exercises to do. Three exercises in the holy place of the sanctuary by which we can be sanctified, by which we can grow in strength spiritually, by which we can be witnesses in this world. And by the way, if we are just like the world, we are not witnesses. And so God is bringing a people to salvation, and then he is working himself into the people so that more and more and more and more we become like Jesus. And as we become like Jesus, we become different from what the world is. God wants us to do that. And so, three exercises, that's what we want. Okay, in that holy place of the sanctuary, we find the table of showbread, we find the altar of incense, and we find the beautiful candlestick there. Do you remember what the table of showbread was all about? Yes, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As we eat to sustain life, so we need to feed daily on the word of God so that we can become more and more like Jesus. Well, this morning, this evening, uh, depending what time we're at, <laughs> we want to look at the altar of incense today. I had you turn to Psalms 141. We're looking at verse 1 in Psalms 141. And this is David. says, Lord, I cry unto thee. Make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. And what is David doing here? While well, he's praying. And look at verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And I want you to notice two things here. The altar of incense is teaching us not only that, it is, that there is a necessity in prayer, we need to pray, but the other thing that is more specific that it's trying to teach is that our prayer is not acceptable to God. Sinners' prayers are not acceptable to God. And you and I are either lost sinners or saved sinners. Either way, we are sinners and our prayers are not acceptable, acceptable to God except they be mixed with the incense of Christ's righteousness. And you can pray, and I don't care if you're a Christian and I don't care if you're a heathen. You can pray until you're blue in the face. Those prayers are not accepted, not even from Christians, unless we know that our prayers are mixed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we don't have a righteousness. We don't. Even though we have salvation, everything we do becomes defiled because we do it. Do you know that your righteousness is not your own? 
that it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you're a Christian, it's based on what he has done and not what you have done? And do you know that whatever you do is defiled? I could prove it to you, but I don't think, I'm not going to take the time. If anybody here wants to question that thing, come and see me. I've got a quotation for you that'll blow all that away. Yeah. Now, the altar of incense is called the golden altar also. And the reason it's called that is, first of all, it was made of acacia wood, which represents humanity, and it was overlaid by pure gold, which represents the divinity of Christ. Therefore, humanity and divinity were combined there at that altar. Jesus, being divine, came down to this world to set aside his divinity, set aside his godhood, and took on our humanity. And in him, humanity and divinity were combined. Well, we are human, and the only way to gain anything is to receive the divinity of Christ. So that divinity and humanity must be combined also. And there are some people who would like to say, looking at the standard that God has set before us, no way, there's just no way we can do that. And the argument is, after all, I'm just human. Well, let me tell you something. If you are just human, you are not a Christian. Because a Christian is not just human. A Christian combines his humanity with God's divinity, and it is God's divinity that gives us the power to go ahead and reach the standards that are absolutely impossible for humanity to reach. We can see that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have a text there that shows us how this works. Second Peter chapter 1, we're looking at verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. What for? Well, that by these, these, this precious word of God, all inlaid in promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And by the way, that's the only way to escape the corruption that's in the world, is to receive God's word. The power that exists in God's word gives us the strength we need to escape the corruption that's in the world. Now, do you know that Jesus, of course, does the opposite, right? For himself. He came down to this world. He had divinity already. And he set it aside to take our humanity and to live life as you and I have to live it with the same equipment we have so that he shows us how it is possible for us to succeed as he succeeded. Have you turned with me to John chapter 5? John chapter 5. Actually, this concept, in spite of the fact that I'm teaching it again, always excites me because it leaves us with a promise that if we would believe it, we would accomplish amazing things. And you just watch now. We're going to go through a little series of, of Bible verses that are, in the end, very exciting. We're looking at John chapter 5, the beginning of verse 19. Hardly makes sense what we're reading. Then answered Jesus and said to them, Verily, verily, seriously, seriously, I'm telling you, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Isn't that amazing? Well, it is to me that God could come down and say, I can't do anything by myself. <laughs> you know, if you have children, by the time they reach about the time when they can say anything, by that time they can do just about anything, <laughs> they think. But it isn't so. Yeah. Well, here comes God from heaven, and he takes himself, puts himself in a position where he can say, I can do nothing of myself. Look at verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. Why did he say that? Well, it's very easy to understand. We don't have to turn to 
John 15, but you can turn to John 14. In John 15, we have that famous verse, that verse 5 in John chapter 15, that says, without me you can do nothing. Is that true? Ah, friends, listen, it's more than true. And I have proven that verse true (laughs) many, many times. Without God, I'm an absolute mess. Sure, it's the truth. And Jesus knew what he was saying. And he said that to us, and it's true about us. And the reason he says about himself, I can do nothing, is because he took, he came down to take life as we have to live it. And if we can do nothing without God's help, then he put himself in that position where he could do nothing without his Father's help. And that's where we are now. In John chapter 14, we're looking at verse 10. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. Now watch. But the Father that dwells in me, he doeth the works. Hmm? That's John 14, verse 10. The Father that dwells in me, he doeth the works. Did Jesus work great miracles in this world? No. The Father that dwelt in him, he did the works. He did the miracles. Now that's amazing. Are you able to do great miracles? Oh, let me tell you what. I go over there and I, I, I preach to the lifestyle guests every morning practically. Well, four mornings a week I'm preaching to the lifestyle guests. And how I wish I could just say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed of that cancer. But as a matter of fact, as they walk through the door, just heal them one after another. Just How popular would Eden Valley become? <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful? Well, it wouldn't be wonderful at all. Now, for sure, we'd become popular. We could probably charge $20,000 each person and then only spend five minutes with each one and we've got it made. But that isn't God's way. He sends them over there and he wants them to learn a new lifestyle, not go back to doing the same thing they've always done. And so they must retain what it is they're facing. God could heal them if he wanted to. And by a word, he could heal them if he wanted to. But that's not his plan. His plan is to teach them how to live life so as, as to succeed in living life. And so we can't do that. Yeah. Ah, but God can. Now look at verse 12. And that's the, that's the kicker, of course. Verse 12, we're in John 14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, he that exercises faith in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Is that true? Do you believe it? Then live as he lived and do as he did. You know, taking into consideration the times in which we live and the way God intends to do things, do it that way for sure. But let me tell you what, do not denigrate yourself to the point as to say, you know, God wouldn't do that for me. God wouldn't do that through me. No, no, that's not faith. Faith is doing the same thing Jesus did, but in reverse. He was divinity, came down, took on our humanity. We are humanity. Go up, take up his divinity. And then live as he lived because he gave us a demonstration. Jesus lived by faith in what his father was willing to do. Can't we do it? Live by faith, I mean. Take him at his word. This is what this is trying to teach us. Well, anyway, that's why God gave us his word. He did. And his word has power. And we must receive, we must eat the bread of life that we might have by these great promises, his divinity. In John chapter 6, verse 63, you don't have to turn there. Let me just tell you. He says there, the words that I speak unto you, 
They are spirit and they are life. Take in his words. The power is just right there. And that's how Jesus comes into our, our lives. Go to John 15, looking at verse 7. John chapter 15, looking at verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Do you see it? Read the word, believe the word, receive the word, and Jesus' word comes into your heart, and by his word, Jesus comes in, the Holy Spirit comes in, and then it says, ask what you will, when God is there. Ask what you will. So what's another word for asking? Praying. That's right. That's what we're studying this morning. Do you pray? How much do you pray? Do you know how to pray? You know, there are people who feel like they don't know how to pray. Just ask him the question, do you talk? That's what prayer is. It's talk. Do you ever talk to anybody? So talk to God. Talk to God about whatever concerns you. Talk to God about the thing that you need. Talk to God about the life you're living. Talk to God about His own intentions for you. Just talk to God. And the more you do, the longer you do, your prayer will change. Your prayer will improve. And someday you'll be noted as a man of prayer, woman of prayer. That's what God wants. Well, I wanted to share a story with you. And you've heard the story. I'm going to tell you again this famous story about a hockey game that I happened to win. <laughs> well, the Lord did, actually. <laughs> After the Second World War, you understand, there was a Cold War developing between Russia and America after the Second World War. In 1971, Canada offered a small gesture of detente. Canada wanted to relax things between the two nations as much as they could, so they offered to play the Russians a game, a tournament of hockey. Well, that was well and good, except that the Canadians were not allowed to play their pros. This was supposed to be amateur players playing against amateurs in Russia. The problem with that, of course, is all the players in Russia were professionals, but under the topic of, of um, amateurs. And so that didn't work very well for the Russians as well as anybody else, because the Russians just wiped the ice with everybody. Every nation that they played, they just beat them like nothing. And so finally, even the Russians got fed up with this thing, and they decided to demand that they get to play the Canadian professionals. That's who they wanted to meet. They wanted to prove that they could beat the Canadians. Well, go figure. <laughs> well, you know, the Canadians thought this is going to be a piece of cake. Because we invented this game. It's our game. And we know what we're doing. And there's no way no Russian is going to beat us. Ha, ha, ha. Well, they organized an eight-game tournament. Four games in Canada. Four games in Russia. The, op the opening game came. And the Russians beat the Canadians 7-3. to three. Now, let me tell you something. It was one deflated nation. As a matter of fact, you could go out on the street in any city in Canada. And everyone was walking around with bags over their heads. Figuratively. <laughs> it's the truth. Talk about, talk about being embarrassed. Yes. Well, the Lord helps us. And by the way, isn't God good? Doesn't He always do that? When you think, doesn't the Bible say that if you, if you exalt yourself, you will get knocked down? And if you humble yourself, you will get picked up by God that He will lift you up? He just operates on that level with every individual and with nations even. With nations He does it. And He did it, of course, over there. You can count on it. And, and our pride was devastated. Praise the Lord. That's what I say. Well, in order to soothe the thing a little bit, He let us win the second game. 
Canada 4, Russia 1. And then the third game was a tie. In the last game, the Russians won uh, again 4-2. And so that was two games for the Russians, one game for the Canadians, and a tie. And so the Russians were winning. Two weeks later, everybody flew to Russia. And in the fifth game, the Russians won again, 5-4. to four. Now, that put the Canadians with their backs against the wall because they had to win every single game left in order to win the tournament. And what was the chance of that, seeing how strong the Russians were playing? There's no way that this thing was going to happen, right? Well, in the next game, the Canadians won, 3-2. to two. And the seventh game, the Canadians won, 4-3. to three, And we're down to the last game. And Canada has to win outright. They can't tie and win, because if they tie, the Russians had actually more, more goals than the Canadians, and that would have counted to their, to their side. So Canada had to win the game outright. So I went to work that day. I was working underground in the mine. And I went to work, and at lunchtime, I came into the lunchroom, and uh, the game was already on. As a matter of fact, it had already gone to the third period. There's three periods in a hockey game. It had already gone to the third 20-minute period. And I sat down and, and I asked, hey, how's the game going? And everyone was like, <laughs> you know, Russia's winning 5-3. to three, And they're in the third period. What's the chance of Canada scoring three goals and the Russians scoring no goals at all? Uh, we're lost. Well, at that point, and by the way, I had never really prayed formally ever before. I uh, did beads a lot and that sort of stuff. Uh, but I had never really prayed formally. And right there in my seat with all the guys in the lunchroom before they didn't know I was praying, I sent up a prayer to heaven and I said, Lord, how many communists are praying tonight? Well, communists don't pray, you know. Did you know that? Yeah, communists don't pray. And that was my argument. You know, you got to get the Lord where he's against the wall. And so I said, how many communists are praying tonight? There's at least one Canadian praying tonight, and I'm asking you to win this game for us. And do you know that God responded? He told me, I will do it. I don't know how he told it, but the, the thing is, I knew he had. And so I announced to everyone in the lunchroom, the game is in the bag. We're going to win this thing. And everyone went like, yeah, right. Oh. I said, no, no, relax. The game is is in the bag. It's it's ours. We're going to win. Well, they didn't believe it. It just looked too bad. It wasn't enough time in the game and all the rest. There's plenty of time for sure in the game. Well, anyway, 10 minutes later, whatever it was, the phone rang in the lunchroom. There's, we're 3,000 feet underground. The, the phone rings and they said, Canada scored again. It's Five to four. And I said, see? Yeah, right. Well, they still have to score twice more, you know. And about five or ten minutes later, I don't know exactly how long. Anyway, the phone rang again. Canada scored. It's five to five. Yeah, but we have to score one more. And it's less than one minute left in the game. And so you can understand. they got to drop the puck. you got to grab the puck. And you've got to get your, yourself all the way to that net. And you got to put it in the net besides... Now, I believe, and if I'm not mistaken, that Canada pulled the goalie so that it added an extra pil- uh, player on the ice. And so they dropped the puck. And with 34 seconds left in the game, Paul Henderson, a born-again Christian, Paul Henderson put the, the puck in the net. You can imagine what happened in Canada. They probably trashed every city. <laughs> yeah. Well, the issue, the problem, the the, the point of all this is that Nobody knows who won that game that night. I did. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter, I didn't. God did. Do you think, and, and do you know that God did it for me? 
Does God do that kind of stuff? Yes, he does. And it's amazing that what God will do. Now, don't go thinking that you're going to uh, go outside there and pray for the Broncos and the Broncos are going to win the the the, 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 the Super Bowl. I always want to say the great cup or the, the Stanley Cup. Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. God's not interested in sports. God is interested in your soul. And if if in your spirit you really want to know something, if in your spirit you would be willing to follow God, if he knows that if he works a miracle you're going to go with him, that it will draw you to him, he will do it. He will do it. He won't do it just because you want to win the Super Bowl. That doesn't work that way. God is not into nonsense. He really, really isn't. Listen. If God was willing to go to the cross and to suffer eternal damnation on your behalf, don't you think it'd be a lot easier just to win the hockey game? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. God will do anything except force you to follow him. There are a lot of people in in uh, the Bible, you can read the history. How many times did the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, show us, show us a, a miracle and we will believe. And when did he do that? Well, friends, he was he was working miracles every day, every day. They wanted signs. They could have just looked at yesterday and the day before and the day before. There was plenty of signs to be seen out there. Every day Jesus was working a miracle. And yet they wanted another one. They didn't want another one so they could believe. They wanted another one out of curiosity and to find something wrong with it somehow. Yeah. Well, we're not going to be that way, are we? God will do great things for you. He will. But you need to be going in the right direction. And apparently I was going in the right direction. I was being drawn by the Lord and he was willing to work a, a, a strange miracle in order that I might draw closer. That's what it was all about. I told another story also about this train derailment business, you remember. I've been asked to preach in Bulawayo. Uh, this was about 700 miles from Riverside. It was in a different country, the country of Zimbabwe. We were living in Zambia. At the time, my wife and I didn't have a vehicle. I was just newly elected president of um, of Riverside. And so I asked my wife, do you want to go to Bulawayo with me? My wife always wanted to go where, I, where I'm going. So it's a mute question. Uh, she wanted to come. So how are we going to go? Well, I don't know. Why don't we take the train? We've never taken the train before. You know, in America, you don't need to go on the train. Uh, because everyone always owns a car, and so that. But in Africa, we kind of had a choice, and so we decided. We went and we bought tickets. And the tickets were having a train leave Wednesday evening at six o'clock at night. So we showed up at the train station six o'clock at night. This is when the sun goes down in Zambia, and of course the train was late. They said the train won't be here till nine o'clock, which is not so bad because if the train had been there, they would have, it would have been late about twenty-four hours. You see, but anyways, it was only late three hours or or, or, or or maybe it was 27 hours. I don't know exactly, but it, it, it came in at 9 o'clock. The problem with the whole scheme was that for the three hours that we were waiting for the train, they were selling tickets. And they were selling tickets and they were selling tickets and they were selling tickets until the, 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 the yard where we were waiting just filled up and filled up and filled up with people. But at 9 o'clock, the train shows up and people are hanging out the windows. Now, fortunately, this is a major station, so a lot of people actually got off the train there, and then people started going for the door of the train. There's just all, just mess, you know. Everyone just charging ahead. 
So I said to my wife, well, we won't get on the train if we don't try. So we put our pack sacks on and we went into the crowd and we managed to get into second class. Now, we had bought second class. We wanted first class. They were all sold. And we got second class thinking, tickets thinking that there would be seats in the train. But in second class, there's no seats. It's just one big open car and everyone stands up. And we were so packed in the car that we were in that I was standing on one foot. One foot. Yeah. Well, anyway, the train got going. And at about every 10 minutes, it would stop and take in more people. I couldn't believe it. How would they take in more people? But they would. I asked the guy standing next to me, how long does it take to get to Livingston, which is halfway, you know, to Bulawayo? Oh, he said about 12 hours. And I went like, 12 hours? How am I going to stand on one foot for 12 hours? This is not going to happen, you know. Anyway, we're still going down the track. Every 10 minutes, they're taking more and more people. At about an hour, an hour and a half down the road, I said to my wife, get us out of here. You know, my wife can do anything, and I depend on her a lot. So she left her pack sack with me, and she swam out through the people. And I didn't hear from her for quite some time. In any case, in the meantime, I sent up a prayer to heaven, Lord, please derail this train. Lord, if you promise, I promise you, if you derail this train, I promise to get off. That was my promise to God. And I didn't care where it was. I had, I just didn't care. You derailed this thing. I want off. See? Okay? And uh, I, that was it for the prayer. My wife came back a time later, and she was over there by the door waving. And so I sent the pack sack over the heads of all the people, and mine and her pack sack both. Then I swam through the crowd and found my wife. She found a place in um, first class. And it wasn't in one of the booths or anything. It was in the aisle. But we at least could sit down. So now we're sitting down and the train is going down the track. And all of a sudden, it went off the track. The train did. And it was bang, 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 bang. And, and the doors were falling off their hinges and dust was falling everywhere. And my wife's got her face in the middle of the window looking outside. And, and I had to tell her to get out from, you know, if that thing falls over, you're going to have a face full of glass. Anyways, the train finally stopped and we were off the track. So I opened the window, I climbed out of the train and I said to my wife, pass me the pack sack. And she did and then she went out the door. I don't know why I went out the window. Um, I think it's more exciting, you know, if you go out the window. But she went out the door and uh, we took our pack sacks and she said, where are we going? I said, I don't care. You want to stay here? It's going to take forever to get this train back on the track. We don't have time for this. We have an appointment. And so we started walking down the track. We walked for 20 minutes, half an hour. I don't know exactly how long. And the first thing you know, the train is coming. It's like, what in the world? Well, it turned out that only the engine was coming. They had left the train behind. They were going to find some help. They saw us and they stopped and they said, you want to ride? And we said, yes. And they made us climb right on the front of the train, right between that big light there. We're standing on the cattle guard. And we're going down the track. Now, let me tell you something. You have never experienced anything as exhilarating as this was. Do you know how much power is in a locomotive? Do you know how smooth the track is? And you're just going. You've got all this power behind you. And it's just like... And you're the hood ornament, you know. (laughs) No, it's wonderful. It really, really is. Yeah, well, we went about 10 miles. And they found the telephone. And that's as far as they wanted to go. And so we said, well, okay, where are we and what do we have to do? They said, walk a mile, a mile and a half. You'll see a trail on the left. It was super dark. I don't know how we would see a trail anyway. But you'll find a trail and climb up this trail. It'll lead to a road. Then it's eight kilometers to the tarmac. We said, okay. 
So we did. We found the trail. We went up on the road. My wife said, we need to kneel and pray. And I said, well, why? It's, it's that way. Anyway, she doesn't trust me. <laughs> and so she uh, made me kneel down and pray. We knelt down and pray. And the first thing you know, as soon as we finished praying, we heard voices. We, you know, it was about midnight, I think, about this time. And there's two men walking down the road. And we can hear them talking. So we waited for them to get here. And we asked them, which way do we go? And, of course, it was on the side that I had said. We, we need to go that way. They said it's eight kilometers to the tarmac. But if you go over the mountain, it's only a kilometer and a half. So I paid one of the individuals to take us over the mountain. And he did. And we went to the tarmac. But that didn't help anything because it's midnight. And in those days, there was a lot of carjacking. So there was no people driving at night. And there was no cars. So we knelt down again on the pavement and said, Lord, we only need one car. We don't need two cars. One is enough. Just send one, please. And five minutes later, a Mercedes comes by with a German man in the Mercedes. And he said, where are you all going? Well, we're going to Riverside. Oh, I know Riverside. I've been there before. And he drove us back to Riverside, back to our house. And we were back at the very same place where we had started. That whole day's adventure was for naught. Except that I get to tell a story when I preach. That, that's worth something. Yeah. So the next day we had to ask ourselves, okay, how do we get to Bogueo today? Well, we're not going to take no train, that's for sure. And so this time we hitchhiked and we had some wonderful experiences there. And like I said the other day, that's where I met Brent the first time. He was at those meetings in Bulawayo. And then he wanted to come home with us because we had such an adventure to tell. And he wanted to have an adventure. And he came home with us. And it was the most boring trip we ever took. <laughs> In any case. Yeah. Do you know that there are conditions to prayer? Yes, there are. And the very first condition to prayer is to recognize that God does not answer prayer because we are good. God does not answer prayers because we are righteous. Because we are religious, because we are active, God does not answer prayer because we are good. God answers prayer because he is loving. And he will answer your prayer to draw you to himself. We had some friends who we were visiting one time and we were telling them about the health message. They were Seventh-day Adventists. We were telling them about the health message and how we really need to keep the health message. And they were telling us, no way. We don't need to keep the It's a good thing. Health message is good. But it has nothing to do with salvation. You can or you don't have to. And then we can prove it. Because God answers all our prayers. You know what they were saying? God answers their prayers because... Well, they could prove they were saved because... God answers their prayer. Not recognizing that God was answering their prayers to draw them to salvation rather than because they were saved. They didn't understand this and I wonder where they're at today. God does not play games. God does not feed our selfishnesses. He honors them that honors Him. That's how it works. Go to Psalm 66. Psalms 66. I'm sorry it's going to take a little longer than usual today. But we got to get through this. We're in Psalm 66. And we're looking at verse 18 in Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, I took that word to the Hebrew um, concordance there to find the meaning of the word. Now, actually, the word regard is a French word. It's a Latin-based word. And it simply means to see or to look at. Now, the connotation when you add the Hebrew meaning, uh, the Hebrew uh, little 
shove that it gives to the word. In any case, it says to look at with joy, to look at sin with joy, to look at sin and cherish it, to look at sin and enjoy it, to look at sin with some kind of relish. That's the very thing that hurt God. That's the very thing that destroys his creation. And God will not hear that prayer when you can pray a prayer and cherish sin at the same time. It doesn't work with God. Go to James chapter 4. We're looking at verse 17 in James chapter 4. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so if you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, there's another verse in the Bible in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. It says there that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Well, that's the equivalent of this verse. It's saying the same thing, just in other words. If you know to do right, then you're, you are expressing an unbelief. That's what Eve did at the tree of knowledge. God said, don't eat from that tree. And he said, well, you know, the serpent says that I'll be like God if I eat from this tree. And so she did not believe God. She did not have faith in what he said. And so whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever you know to do and you don't do, that's sin also. Okay. Condition number two. Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. You know this by heart. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, what does it say? Ask. Do you know the Hebrew says, ask and keep on asking, and it shall be given to you. Verse 8. For everyone that asks and keeps on asking shall receive. Verse 11. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father which is in heaven give Give good things to them that ask and keep on asking. And the Lord wants us to persevere in prayer. The reason that we don't get a direct answer every time immediately when we ask is because God has to organize life to answer that prayer. He might be having to talk to somebody in Russia in answer to your prayer. To begin to organize circumstances to give you the thing that you're asking for. So don't stop asking. The Lord hears our prayers. Go to James chapter 4. Speak something very similar. James chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not simply because you do not ask. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, but it's also possible to ask amiss. You can see that in verse 3. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that ye may consume it on your own lusts. I want, I want, I want. There are some people whose prayer is all, I want, I want, I want. They're like little children in a grocery store. You remember that illustration? Have you ever seen little children in the grocery store, especially the spoiled little kind of children? Now, most children... Uh, you know, are, 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 yeah, they're born with carnal natures. They want what they want and sometimes they get used to asking. And they have, a lot of children have parents that do not discipline their children. And so they're going down the aisle and they want this and they want that and they want this and they want that. And it hardly matters which aisle it is. You might be among the dog food and they'll want it because it's right there. Can't we buy this? Can't we buy that? And 
not anything they need, but they're just going to ask because it's there and they want, they want, they want. Well, I had a, a niece come to Africa when we were in Lesotho and she was 14 years old and she used to hang around my neck all the time. Oh, it made my wife so mad. And she would say, Uncle Frank, can I have this? Uncle Frank, can I have that? And if we went to town, it was far, far worse. Then we would go into a grocery store, whatever it is we would go into, and it was, Uncle Frank, can I have this? Uncle Frank, can I have that? And my wife became really like, <laughs> it was her niece, not mine. But anyway, um, I decided on a plan. I said to Sandra, I said, now listen, from here on out, the very thing you ask for is the very thing you will not receive. Get this in your head. When you ask me for something, that's the very thing you will not get. Okay? And so the first few times we go back to town, we go into a, a, a store, we go into a grocery store, and she would start, Uncle Frank. <laughs> she didn't know. She knew that if she asked, she wasn't going to get it for sure. So now how is she going to figure this thing out? And she never could figure it out. How is she going to get what she wants without asking? It just didn't work. It just didn't work. And so, do you know, two weeks, three weeks, it was all over. Quiet as can be. We could go to town. And if I felt like buying the gang a treat or going to the restaurant or doing whatever we're going to do, I could do it. And she was grateful. And it, it shut this thing right down. By the way, there was a young couple at the meetings when I said this the other day. They came back to me the other day and they said, when I was preaching this, they both hit themselves in the ribs and said, that's our kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so the very next day they went to town, they went shopping, they went to a restaurant and before they went, they told the kids, anything you ask for, note it. Anything you ask for, that's the very thing you're not going to receive. And so they went to town and at the beginning it was like, that. <laughs> <laughs> they would stop them right there they said we had such a pleasant day we went to eat at the restaurant they had no right to choose the restaurant or anything they were going to eat and it was wonderful well it is wonderful when you get things under control anyways condition number three unbelief is a factor believing is a factor go to Mark chapter 11 Mark chapter 11 we're looking at verses 22 to 24 in Mark chapter 11 And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now isn't that a promise? Isn't that wonderful? You could actually go outside here and look at that mountain and tell it to move. Can you? Have you ever tried it? Go ahead. I'd like to see this because I haven't seen a mountain move lately. Not not lately. <laughs> not ever. No. What do you think God is trying to say here? I mean, the words are simple enough. We can understand the English. He says, if you do not doubt in your heart and believe whatsoever you ask, he will do it. So go outside and tell that mountain to move. Let me tell you why. It doesn't work doesn't work that way. God never meant it to work that way. So somebody will say, well, what God is meaning here is mountains of difficulty. That's what he means, okay? So go to the Lifestyle Center and you'll find some people there with mountains of difficulty. Mountains of difficulty. So tell their mountains to move. Tell their cancer to leave this place. Get out of that Lifestyle Center. Get out of the property. Just get off of this world even. Do it. You think it's going to work? No. 
That's not what God meant. Do you know you could sit in a corner and try hard to believe and all that you would be doing is praying a Hindu prayer. That's what Hindus do. They sit in a corner and they concentrate on believing and if they can concentrate hard enough they can make a table levitate. Well, that's only the devil levitating the table in order to promulgate, promote, what am I trying to say? Propagate, that'll be good enough. Yeah. The deception. God is not trying to tell us. Do you know that mountains will move? Do you know that God has promised to move mountains? You can read the book of Revelation. It says that mountains will move and they'll be cast into the sea. You can well believe it will happen because God said it. And that's how faith works. Faith works by taking God at his word. And if he says he's going to move a mountain, he's going to move a mountain. But he's not telling you that he's going to move your mountain. He's going to move the mountains he wants to move. And you can have great faith because he will do that. He's promised. God's honor is staked on his word being true. Can you believe that God would lie to you? No way. He will not lie. Every promise is true and every promise is true to you. And I have an illustration in the Bible. This is James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And you know where we're going. Verse 5. What a tremendous promise that is. And this promise is to every soul in the world. Sinner and Christian alike. This promise belongs to every person in the world. And I can prove it. At least I can explain it. Verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, that is generously and not looking for fault, NIV, and it shall be given him. Now notice here. If you want anything, if you lack wisdom in anything and you want to do it God's way, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're a heathen, it doesn't matter if you're a communist, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist. If in one thing you want to do it God's way and you appeal to God to do it that way, God will give you the wisdom to do it. And that will, of course, draw you to God once he answers that kind of prayer. But notice here, it's a matter of faith also, looking at verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is as a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let that, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And what is a double-minded man? Well, we could use, in the vernacular, we could use the word two-faced. If a man is two-faced, if he's a Christian one day and he's a heathen the next, if today he, uh, he wants to do worldly things and the next day he wants to go to church, that's double-minded. There are a lot of people who would like to sin all they can sin and still go to heaven. They'd like to be saved and bring sin to heaven. That's double-minded and this is what this is talking about. Don't be double-minded. And for our last condition, and that is humility. And as far as I'm concerned, that is the greatest qualifier of answered prayer. That is the greatest qualifier of what it means to be a Christian. Be humble. Can you be humble? Be humble. Uh, a lot was accomplished before you were born. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Wonderful verse. This is at a time when um, Solomon was dedicated the te- dedicating the temple that he had built for the Lord. And the Lord, after, during Solomon's prayer, answered back. And here's what God said. Verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, Christians, 
shall humble themselves. And by the way, this is what God wants. He wants humble people. And then the rest of the verse describes what it means to be humble. Okay? The whole verse is about humility. If my people, which are called by my name, shall be humble, and being humble, they will pray. Do you know that prayer, in, in order to pray, you need to be humble? You never ask anything of anyone if you think you can do it yourself. Or if you think you have it yourself. You don't ask for the thing that you've already got. And so, in order to pray, you must be humble. You must look at God as greater than yourself. And more powerful, and more loving, and more wise, and all the rest that goes with it. So, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, that is, acknowledge me in all their ways, and turn from their wicked ways. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hear your prayer. I'm going to forgive your sins. And I'm going to heal. I'm going to fix your messes. This is what he says. And it's the truth. Now you've heard the story. And I really hate to tell this story all over again. But for the sake of the recording, I have to do it. My story. I came here to Eden Valley October 2002 when I accepted to be president of Eden Valley. Morale was low at that time, and the departments were to some degree mostly in the red. And within six months, we were in the black. Praise God. Not because I am a business person, because I'm anything but a business person. And God sometimes rewards somebody for just accepting a responsibility that they really don't want. And so God rewarded us. And then for three years in a row, I raised the stipends by $100 a month. Three years in a row. In three years, we had raised the stipends by $300. And everything was wonderful until I prayed a very specific prayer. And I said, God, please glorify yourself at Eden Valley. Knowing that he couldn't do it. Oh, I knew he couldn't do it. I still prayed the prayer. God, please glorify yourself at Eden Valley. Knowing that the only way he could do that was to humble me. And so I gave him permission to humble me. And as soon as I did, everything began to go south. And I mean everything began to go south. Some of you were here to experience that wonderful time. (laughs) I wouldn't want to go through that again. I wouldn't do away with it either because it was so instrumental in God's hand for humbling this guy in any case. We used to have a, a retirement center in this room. There were times when it was absolutely full. And you would think it would remain full. You would think Seventh-day Adventists, which is a growing old population, by the way, would want to come and live here. Don't you think so? It's in a beautiful country. It's right across from the church. The diet is vegan. Everything is Adventist. And you'd think that's what people would want. People quit coming. And older people, by the way, died. And so they began to die one by one. And there was no way that we could replace them. I mean, you just couldn't find anyone to come. And so we were losing them, either by dying or leaving. One by one, they were gone. And we got fewer and fewer. It came to the place where we were losing $3,000 a month. And we decided to close the place down. There was even a time when we closed down the Lifestyle Center for six months. There was a time when we decided to invest $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars on on agricultural equipment. Because God said, the A, B's and C's of education is agriculture. And if that's the truth, then all we have to do is do agriculture and God is going to bless. Isn't he going to bless? Well, let me tell you what. Not only did we spend a quarter of a million dollars in investing on equipment, but we were losing three years in a row. Something like $100,000 on top of it. Bad, bad 
<laughs> Not good. And friends, listen. We came to the place. I came to the place where I saw myself in reality to be an absolute incompetent. Absolute. Absolute failure. That's what it was. Now friends, listen. God didn't have to make me an incompetent. I already was an incompetent. And if I ever did anything right, and if ever it appeared like I was succeeding, it was God sustaining me. There was God in my life holding me up, holding me up. And then one day, because I prayed a certain prayer, he removed himself from me. He didn't have to make me incompetent. He just had to remove himself. And as soon as he did, all that was left was incompetence. In Faith and Works, page 146, paragraph 0, it says, When God lets a man have his own way, it is the darkest hour of his life. Do you want to have your own way? I know what that means. I know where that leads. And I am no longer interested in having my own way. Really, really, I'm not. Because I know where it leads. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of failure, death. That's what it says. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. It is not in man that walketh to direct his step. We might think we know what we want. We might think we know what to do. But it isn't true. If we don't acknowledge God in all our ways, He cannot direct our path. We're going to find out where it leads. And we're not going to be happy with this thing. It came to the place where I was praying two and a half hours every day. An hour in the morning. At lunchtime, half an hour. And after work, I would leave work and I would go straight up the mountain. Whether it was summer or winter, light or dark, it didn't matter. I went up the mountain and I spent another hour pleading with God for the help that I needed at that time. Well, what happened in 2008? The economy crashed. My economy had already crashed. Yeah. In July, I called the board together asked if I could borrow $150,000 from the Chase Bank here in town. And they said, yes, you can borrow $150,000. I said, but I don't have any way to pay it back. That doesn't matter. If you fail, we can sell Eden Valley and we'll pay it all back and it'll be all over. And that was wonderful, wasn't it? So I did borrow $150,000. I took $30,000, set it aside, hoping to use the $30,000 to make payments on the $150,000 and that the Lord... We're buying ourselves a little bit of time, giving the Lord time to work. Well, of course, in in September, the economy did crash, and my economy had already crashed, and we were in abject trouble. The Lord had brought us just to the brink of the precipice. It's amazing, but that's how God works, too. He's never late. He's always on time, but it's never before you don't see over the edge. <laughs> you always get right to the point where... And that's how it is. I'm sorry... To say so, but it, that's the experience. And we had gotten right to the place where we were done. Done. Finished. And it was all my fault. And I knew that I would be seen as the biggest, the biggest failure in the world. At this point, Barbara Taylor called me up and she said, here's what you do. Write a letter. Write a letter to your newsletter list. And it's like, right, I, like I've never written letters to my newsletter list. We write them all the time. Well, she said, write another one. <laughs> And I wrote this letter that said, I am in trouble. I need your help. And I described what the trouble was that we were facing. And do you know what came back from that letter? $240,000. Can you believe it? Do you know what helped to bring that about? Why? 
the crash in 2008, September. One lady sent a check for $50,000. She says, hey, it's all over. You know, the economy's crashed. There's no point having this money in the bank. You may as well have it. And she sent me $250,000. And of course, there were a lot of friends, people who had never sent us a, a penny ever. Just somehow the letter, God, taking the letter and the, just a few little letters on that on that page and driving it to their hearts. And it's amazing. Some of the people that sent money, you never, ever believe what it would be tell. Yeah. In January, and by the way, in November, the Lifestyle Center was full. It was all kinds of encouragement. The Lord was leading us. We have a $90,000 cushion now because we've paid back the 115. We have $90,000 left. Praise the Lord. This was great. Then he filled up the Lifestyle Center and we're thinking, ah, the test is over. Now he's going to glorify himself at Eden Valley. Well, in January, there was not one soul that signed up for the Lifestyle Center. It was like, oh no, what's going on now? And so I had an idea, and the idea was uh, that Jim Gilly, of course, had heart problems there at 3 of the end, and, and uh, the production manager, uh, C.A. Murray, had prostate cancer. Let's give them both a free lifestyle center, and perhaps they'll give us a little bit of airtime. And the executive committee said, no way, that wouldn't be fair. There's all these people working at 3 of the ends. Why should we give two people a free session when there's all those other people? That's not fair. So let's give it to everyone. And I thought, we're going to lose our shirt. That doesn't work. But we did it. I wrote a letter to 3 of the end saying everyone at 3 of the end could come to Eden Valley and it would be on a donation basis. I softened it up a little bit. However, these people work on a stipend like we do. They're not making a lot of money. And there's no way they can afford to come at the price that it is. And so this isn't going to work. But do you know that we we lost money the very first month? That's all. We lost a little bit of money. That was February 2009. And after that, we made money in the Lifestyle Center every month. It was amazing. It really, really was amazing. And within three weeks, C.A. Murray was cancer-free. He went back to the station. On the air, he told the whole world that he'd been healed of cancer at Eden Valley. Then he came back with a film crew and he uh, did a documentary of Eden Valley, an hour documentary, showed that on the air, and then we had three interviews on the air also. And the phone began to ring. And friends, it's been going fairly, fairly well ever since then. It's been a blessing. And we've had more interviews, of course, since that time. Sometime during that first year, Weston McNeilis came to us. He was 20 years old. He was dying of cancer. And he died. Um, we became friends. We had Bible studies together. And when he was leaving, he asked his mom. He said, um, do I have any money? She said, four or five million, I think. <laughs> Amazing. 20 years old and you don't have, you don't know if you have any money and you have that kind of money. He says, could we give Eden Valley a hundred thousand dollars? And she said, yes, and they did. And then when he went to the Mayo Clinic, he was going to die and he asked if I could do his funeral. And we did that. And after the funeral, his dad gave us another hundred thousand dollars. A year later, the same individual wrote us a check for one million dollars. Isn't that amazing? But the greatest gift that I have received since that time is the staff at Eden Valley, as far as I'm concerned. What a blessing that the Lord 
Do you know that you can have not so good sex sometimes? <laughs> Do you know that it can go really, really bad for you if you don't have the right people? If the people you have are not godly people doing God's will? Oh, how bad it became for a while. But the Lord changed all that also. And you know we began working towards our master plan. And we thought there's no way we can get the master plan on time for Maranatha to come. But it came on time. And then Maranatha came and did about $200,000 worth of work. God has been heaping honor upon honor upon us here over and over and over again. And someone might say, wow, what a leader you are. Yeah, president of two institutions, um, board chairman of four, sitting on eight boards, asked to speak all over the world. But the dark truth is, friends, no, I am an incompetent who, when I humble myself enough to pray and to seek his face and to turn from my sins, he hears my prayers, he forgives my sins, and he fixes my message. Friends, listen. In the sanctuary model, morning and evening, a sacrifice was offered for the people's sins. And the prayers of the people were made acceptable through the sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ's righteousness. <laughs> Likewise, we should meet with God day by day, morning and evening, sending our prayers up through the merits of Jesus Christ. And our conditions, of course. Prayer are not answered because we are good. We ought to believe when we pray. We ought to ask God for the things that we want. And we ought to be humble. Pray, seek His face, turn from your wickedness so that God can forgive your sins, hear your prayers, and fix your problems. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.